Hey everybody, this is Stuart with Reanimated, bringing you today a, an encore presentation of one of our very first podcasts, our second, in fact, uh, on the novel by Max Brooks, World War Z. We talked a couple weeks ago about uh, the potential for a sequel to the film with Brad Pitt, which I know shares about as much DNA with the novel as I do with an octopus. It's at least worth revisiting, and I felt like uh, we could go back in time and hear what H.A. and I had to say about that book when this whole thing was getting kicked off, that is to say, Reanimated Podcast. Hope you enjoy. We'll be back soon with another podcast fresh off the presses for you. Alrighty. In a nutshell, what what is World War Z? Um, World War Z is a book by Max Brooks, and it is set in a world uh, following a zombie apocalypse and it is written from the main the main narrator is somebody who is gathering survivor stories so he basically travels around the world and talks to various survivors of the zombie apocalypse Um, what i thought was interesting about the 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 establishment of this narrator character is that it's it's an official report like for the you know whatever the modern equivalent is of the un is in this book it's like and he's you know the the foreword or the uh prologue is basically saying yeah they didn't like my report because it was too personal or too filled with emotion uh so i thought that was actually as far as tropes go and uh, like a a way to write a an interesting story i thought that was a very cool uh introduction i thought it was a great lead-in and then you know you sort of grab the audience because you're you think you're getting the inside perspective as opposed to the official dry report right (laughs) yeah but he marries both worlds. So he's like, it's it was too emotional, but this is how it all went down. Right. You know? uh, the unredacted, unedited, the true story. And then, uh, so the, the the book is like a series of 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 interviews, essentially. Although the narrator isn't really in a lot of them uh, too too much. He kind of lets his subjects tell their stories a lot. And he even says that though. He says he takes himself out of it as much as possible so that you're getting their perspective firsthand. I mean, do you remember how many different points of view there are in this or how many interview subjects? There's probably 12 or so. There's at least 12. There may be more. Um, so it's it's from a lot of different perspectives and it covers the entire planet. And and he kind of takes you from the months immediately preceding, I guess, really the timeline. If you If you were to break it all down and go from chronologically how the story is told, it's basically from exactly when the outbreak starts right. to... What, 12 years afterwards? Yeah, that seems to be about about how far he goes with it. Which is nice because you get you get the the retrospective view on how how it happened, how it spread, mm-hmm. why it wasn't stopped and and all the details that you always want to know in these kinds of stories. And details is definitely the the name of the game. <laughs> the key word here <laughs> because Max Brooks has done so much research to to have all these uh you know, tiny details, really interesting, fascinating details and insights, I think. It, um, I think it's during the course. truly impressive. <laughs> yeah. If, if I may just uh, launch off with, with some um, memorable scenes, let's call them, or memorable themes. Um, and the first one, and I think this is one of the first ones we're introduced to, is China. Right. He has a fairly weird obsession with China in this book. And it's it's kind of negative uh, even though he has Chinese characters in the story who are portrayed in a positive light 
this is one of these things about this book where it's, you know, it's all a metaphor or allegory for modern society. And apparently <laughs> Max Brooks is not a fan of China or at least the Chinese government. Well, and he's not, it's not exactly uh, veiled either. He doesn't really yeah. cover that up at all. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, assuming, you know, this is a work of fiction. So how much, how much you're supposed to read into it, that's, you know, but essentially zombies come from China. <laughs> <laughs> it's China, there's, it's there's, no, fault. there's no real explanation though no for I mean, that. beyond like well he blames it on the three gorges dam it's like he does but you know he's like all right this dam caused zombies <laughs> somehow it flooded these villages or no they deliberately flooded these villages and thus zombies were born um so that's like strike one against china and <laughs> and then you have like a a, a chinese civil war where the uh, the hard hardline communists are fighting people who just want to survive. I'm not, I wasn't really clear on what, who the two sides were other than it was communists and rebels, but I don't, I was never really sure what their, the rebels platform he, he was. He was pretty vague on that point. Yeah. I think deliberately so. But it's, so it's like communists and whoever they're fighting against, which you might just read into as being like, Oh, more like an American idea of what Chinese government should be. So it gets a little political, but then the, the Chinese establishment, essentially goes to war with itself and covers up the zombie apocalypse for a really long time. That's another kind of major thing that he, he has, he has a problem with China for doing that. Um, and then in the end, the three gorges dam collapses <laughs> the cause of the zombie apocalypse then also has another, uh, calamitous event. And, uh, I forget what the outcome of that was other than just like flooding a bunch of more villages. <laughs> right. Uh, he's not a fan of that dam. No, he is not. Uh, and that's pretty clear. Because <laughs> he talks about it throughout the book. Like, there's, he goes back to this point several times with several... Is it? It's not the same person either, right? There are a few different there's Chinese There's a few different characters. Chinese characters that talk about this, so... There's the, the doctor, there's the submarine captain. Right. And, you know, one of the things I thought was also interesting is that his theme that we could have stopped it had they been open about it and asked for help, but they didn't trust anybody, so they hid it, and they knew that we'd be monitoring them, so they just changed what they were doing to make it look like they were they were doing something else when they were actually trying to stop the zombie plague. To the extent that they like almost went to war with Taiwan. Right. Which, yeah, was kind of crazy. So that was kind of interesting. But then he also goes into the the American side of things. Where, you know, certain people, were experts were trying to send reports out to give warning of this happening. And nobody, people kept burying the reports. I guess not just in the U.S., but everywhere, right? Worldwide, that was kind of the way to go. Well, his, I feel like his big exception is Israel. Right. Who saw the report and immediately went into full-on zombie protection mode and like built a walled city. Like... What, was it everyone moved to Tel Aviv, essentially? Right. And anybody who had been a resident in the last, like, 15 years or so, even if they were not currently there, could, were allowed to come back and, yeah. and live in this safe haven. Including Palestinians right. and anybody. So that was another one of his messages that's like, you know, zombie survival builds walls and communities. Right. And then, you know, other people saw what was going on in Israel, but still didn't really or didn't seem to be doing much. The U.S. had their own plans um, and they had these special alpha forces 
that were supposed to basically keep the problem at bay for a bit. And then Russia basically was having their, their military go out, but not actually telling them what they were hunting. Yeah. And this, to me, the first time I read this book was one of the, the scenes that, that really stayed with me, the, the decimation. Right. Um, and, and decimation, and as Max Brooks explains in the book, it's, it's not like you don't decimation, you usually use it today to mean like everybody's killed or everything's destroyed, but it really just means one in 10. And it was used in Roman legions to uh, enforce morale, or not morale, but enforce discipline. And so when the Russian army in this book is facing a mutiny, they engage in decimation, um, which usually uh, in the Roman legions and in this book means that you, the soldiers are, are forced to kill one in ten of their own. Which means that they feel guilty. Because yeah, they, because they're participants. Right. Know. And they, you know, and, and the character in the book that's describing this basically said, this was genius to make everybody obey what they were saying because everybody felt so terrible and guilty about doing this to their own comrades that they were thankful to have decisions taken away from them, um, to be under control, to have somebody else saying, no, this is what you did and this is what you do. And they can say they're just following orders. And, you know, on the, on the flip side of that, well, Russia was trying to do this and, and keep their own people in line. The U.S. also had their government reaction to the zombies after after everything came to light. Um, and, you know, their their idea was to basically have this big stand to show to show everybody that they were in control, that we had this thing covered. Um, right. It's confusing uh, what the timeline is like as far as infection goes. Obviously, it's pretty advanced by the time you get to this battle of Yonkers. Um, it's like all of New York City has been infected or has become, you know, has been overrun. And so this, the American military sets up north of the city and, and right? Is that where Yonkers is? Yep. New York expert? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, with a lot of media presence and it's definitely a dog and pony show. And they're going to, you know, kick Zach's butt. It doesn't really work out that way. Well, and the person describing this was a a soldier that was on the ground there. Um, And he's basically talking about all the things that they did to prepare for this battle. But they're preparing as if it's a normal mortal enemy. So they're doing things like digging foxholes and, and... Said, I mean, they're setting up on the ground. They're doing nothing strategically that would help them in this particular situation. Um, it's a show of force to an enemy that doesn't really care about a show of force. Right. Um, and an enemy that's not going to stop coming at them just because it sees a line of, of tanks. I should uh, add that the, the version I, I recently listened to the audio book version of uh, World War Z and the, uh, the actor who portrayed Wainio, I forget his first name, but the soldier who basically was at uh, Yonkers and at uh, subsequent battles with zombies was uh, played by Mark Hamill of Luke Skywalker fame. And, I think um, that's why you brought up Luke Skywalker. It's probably, it's probably why. Although he doesn't sound anything like Luke Skywalker <laughs> when he's doing this. He's obviously, uh, yeah, he sounds a lot different. But it, what I feel like this part of the book starts to introduce is this... Uh, concept that basically he attributes to the American military anti-zombie military complex 
of cost of the equipment versus the uh, its ability to kill zombies. And I forget there's a specific name for this ratio where they, they, they're using like tanks and uh, missile launcher systems and Apache helicopters that are all super expensive to uh, to run in terms of gas and, and support. And yet they're just not effective enough at killing zombies. And so the Battle of Yonkers is referred to repeatedly as how not to do it. One of the biggest things he mentions is that they were on the ground when there was like a ton of buildings. They could have just been picking them off from the rooftops and things like that. Right. And they were all in mop gear, um, which is the uh, anti-chemical weapon nuclear gear that the military has. And it's extremely hot and bulky. And, and you know, he's making the point that the anti-zombie war has to be fought from more of a mobile lightweight perspective or right and then later on i mean they do talk about different weapons that were developed that were just very simple like the lobo which the lobotomizer which is basically a it was a zombie shovel slash axe i think is what i i picture it in my head anyway Mm -hmm. um which can just basically take them out it's clean it's easy to wield, and you don't need a lot of training to use it. Yeah, and he uh, attributes that to... The Marine Corps. The Marine Corps, which is an accurate uh, portrayal. I mean, the Marines have, have constantly made do with, with less, and uh, it's kind of... I thought that was a, another one of his insights that... I mean, it's not, like, hard, difficult to know that that's the case. The Marine Corps is, is famous for its uh, ability to scavenge and, and make use of, of fewer assets than other services. Yeah, but I think, I mean, I think this is also just a very, another example of the research he must have done for this book. Um, yeah. Exhaustive research, research about all these different things and strategies and different branches of our military. Yeah, and and, and not just our military. There were um, other people's military too, so. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a chapter set in, well, it's actually in Ireland where the interview takes place, but it's with a former commander of a German military unit uh, who was one of the guys in charge of defending the city of Hamburg. And um, in the audiobook, this is also voiced by a famous guy, um, Jürgen Prochnow, who was Duke Lido Atreides in the movie Dune and the captain of the submarine in Das Boot. Um, Another so, very excellent film. And a very recognizable voice. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, so this guy is is relating the uh, the story of how he was basically he's his soldiers and their tanks are, are defending the best they can against uh, zombies in Hamburg, and then they are given orders to pull back because the Germans have um, and actually Max Brooks called it in the book the Prochnow plan, which I don't know if that was a shout out to Jurgen Prochnow. I think it probably not. was. That's my guess, been, and that's probably and how he got him to do it, right? Yeah. Uh, which is uh, another huge part of this book where he basically has uh, this South African guy called Redeker come up with this really heartless plan on how to survive the zombie apocalypse, which includes basically leaving most of your population to die or to become well, zombie bait. Yeah, setting them up as bait and distracting the zombies so that you can rescue another portion of the population. Yeah, I mean, all he cares about is saving enough people to continue society, but most people are going to die. And that's like the only way to do it. And he, you know, Brooks gives a lot of props to this, even though he's uh, universally hated 
because he's like an apartheid dude. He's not a popular guy, the Redeker guy who comes up with this idea. No, and he suffers a lot of, of people are threatening him with death threats. Yeah, even way after the Long the after the part. threat is over. But it's it's a very interesting look at uh, kind of a Machiavellian approach to, to the zombie war. And then, I mean, they do talk a lot about... I mean, this is this is part of the whole falling down of civilization, the, the crumbling of civilization and what happens when there is no government there, when there is no structure there, how different different populations deal with it. Um, so one of the things um, was the Rockies, that area with the separatists. Um, well, what happens in the U.S. is that they make basically everything west of the Rockies is now the United States. Right. And everything east of the Rockies is kind of left to its own devices. Right. So the government, they, they establish like a, a quote unquote safe zone. And they have all these color codes in the book. And I forget, like white is bad. Blue is safe. I forget the rest of them. But either way, so at west of the Rockies is cleaned up first. And once they have and then that they slowly, They slowly start to take back the rest. Right. But... Because they've they've adjusted and and they're now able to fight zombies more effectively. Right. But in, you know, in the meantime, there have basically been people that have been out there surviving on their own and they kind of don't want to be taken back into the fold. So, I mean, and why would they? Right. You know? And they feel very much like, hey, we managed to survive this long. Why do we now have to live by your rules? So um, it's it's addressing all of those issues that would happen after civilization falls and then is coming back to life. Yeah, and that's uh, more of that is is uh, described by the Mark Hamill <laughs> character, right? The last man on Earth. The last man on Earth uh, concept, which, ironically, not ironically, my hometown is Chicago, and that's basically where it goes down. It's like the Sears Tower has become <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, a separatist uh, encampment. Where they, I'm like nobody who survives a zombie apocalypse would want to stay in the Sears Tower. It doesn't make any sense. No. There's a lot of stairs. I think I think he just threw that in there because, and, and you see this a few times. He'll throw in some recognizable landmarks. Yeah, yeah. Um, just to keep it interesting. And then you know he addresses some other things, and and I mean, Cuba comes up. They're they're becoming a, a world power basically, because yeah, he, he mentions that the Cuban peso is the only real recognizable currency. Because they're an island and they can do what they want, basically, and not they did not succumb to the to the apocalypse like all the other countries did because of the way their governments is set up. People are used to following orders, which is what he implies. So they were in, in this particular book. They're better equipped to deal with with this sort of crisis. Yeah, I'm not sure that I understand why Cuba would come out ahead when he describes islands as being. Under con- I mean, because zombies basically all go underwater <laughs> at some point. This was, I, I agree. This was a piece that I wasn't fully um, on board with just because it didn't make sense when he talks about all the people that drowned and that are walking up on the beaches. Well, because I think there was a huge flight to boats and a lot of infected people also ended up on boats. Right. And then somehow all ended up in the water or in the oceans. And now they just walk out of the water every so often. Well, they do. I mean, I understood that piece, but I just didn't understand why Cuba would be immune to yeah. that. Yeah, and and you know, given their infrastructure, how they'd be able to deal with the onslaught. 
unless they're saying that people came to them like non-infected people looking for safe haven and they bartered with them for goods and things like that. Yeah. That was a probably one of the few troubling points I had in my head while I was reading it. Yeah, I mean, I, I get it from a the geopolitical perspective where it's, you know, these guys are like waiting for a Bay of Pigs every day. And, and so if the their daily Bay of Pigs is just zombies walking out onto the shore. The, then they're okay yeah, with that. They can just be like, Cuba eh. could probably handle that. Yeah. Cuba, Cuba could probably handle that. I don't know that that puts them in a position to be like the world superpower after the zombie war. And then another another piece that he brings up, and this is interesting, um, the the Keeslings, just in in terms of people's reactions to the zombies. Keeslings, it's a term from World War II, and it, it was more it was an actual person who basically uh, betrayed his own people to work with the Germans. Is that correct, Stuart? I think that that's the the origination of the word, and so. In World War Z, the term is used to describe humans that basically give up and believe that they're zombies. So they walk around and they they moan and they to everybody else they seem like zombies, but they're actually still alive. And the way he describes it is people that just can't deal with the reality of the world and so basically become the thing that they most fear. And eventually a lot of these, these Keeslings get killed by the zombies if they run into them. So it's it's probably not a good thing to be and eventually they also die of starvation yeah it's it's a it's definitely a mental disorder in this case right and uh, i just looked it up it's a norwegian it's named after Sorry. a norwegian guy who uh vidkun quisling or something along those lines uh who became an, a nazi uh, collaborator after his country was taken over so yeah it's basically the same as the vichy french thing and i think it, that's why it basically became a a thing because it was so widespread Right. And so, you know, that's his way. And you and I saw these a few these themes a few times bringing in some themes from World War II. Um and from the Holocaust and and you can definitely sense that sort of undertone in a yeah. few of the narratives he, he, definitely. He definitely brings in um a lot of historical elements with the German chapter he talks a fair amount about the Cold War and the difference between East and West Germany and and how their cultures are different, like East Germans have no sense of personal responsibility, kind of. It's, it gets a little awkward. And then he's also talking about Holocaust survivors, which is going to really date this book, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but, I mean, it, it makes more sense, given all of the geopolitical elements that he's put into it, that this zombie apocalypse basically has to have happened sometime in the last 15 years from today. Right, right. Yeah, and then, I mean, he goes into other other themes and ideas too, which is, you know, how the normal suburban person or family would survive this or react to this. And one of the stories is the the family that basically decides to drive north with a lot of other families. So they you know, and in this case, I'm assuming this is from this is the US obviously that they're they're coming from and they haven't been given a lot of information about what they're supposed to do they just hear sort of a general message to go north and so a lot of people do that but without any sense of what surviving in the quote-unquote north would be like you know you're talking about people that go up without having enough fuel or clothing and they have some very um just pie in the sky ideas about just you know 
living living in the woods and eating berries and um just that it turns out to just be a total disaster and this is part of what brooks describes as the great panic right where although this i, I guess the the canadian wildlife story kind of predates the great panic because they get up there they talk about getting up there before the roads get too crowded yeah because they're still able to drive i mean they definitely see people and some zombies it is implied on the roads but it's not like what is described later as just the the roads completely clogged with traffic and not able to move at all and zombies basically moving along it like a giant buffet right yeah so it's it's uh it's eye-opening and makes you want to go out and buy some good camping gear it does actually it does it absolutely <laughs> does because she um the narrator in this case describes like how all the you know the ems and reis are sold out of all these goods immediately and you know there weren't any there weren't any good sleeping bags left and, and people just kind of had what they had and it wasn't adequate as counterpoint to that in the uh pilot down chapter the, the one where the woman is being is like hiking through the swamps of uh, Louisiana, right. uh, she comes across a, an SUV stocked, like the really well stocked with all these expensive um, survival tents and, and rifles and food. And the driver has still just shot himself because it's such a hopeless situation. Right. So he's, he's, Brooks is also saying, you know, it doesn't matter if you've got all the gear. It's about, um, you know, mental fortitude and being able to just put yourself through the situation well true and then there was the other there was another section where um the narrator had been basically a suburban housewife and she's now the governor of this post apocalypse zombie apocalypse community where she's designed these houses that have that are basically on stilts and have retractable ladders that go from house to house mm -hmm. and she is describing just how in the dark she was and how she evolves into this leader. So, yeah, you're right. There are definitely some other examples of how people were better prepared. Um, yeah. and, but not, but not necessarily with gear. And, and one, another, uh, thing that she mentions in her story is that her whole family is on this drug called phalanx, which is a placebo that everybody knows is a placebo. But they just that do it being, to keep. There's being sold to like this is this will protect you from the zombie virus, and um, it's it's kind of a it, it's obviously a condemnation of the uh, American you know medical uh, pharmaceutical industry essentially. And the the guy who sold Phalanx survives the zombie war and is living in Antarctica, and they even have an interview with him. And I thought that was that was pretty telling yeah and i mean it, i don't think it was just about the pharmaceutical industry but it, i think it was definitely a a rip on the the fda and um the government in you know they knew it was going on because they knew that it would calm the population long yeah. enough till they figured out what to do i think so i i think it was a condemnation of, of the pharmaceutical industry slash their relationship with the government I think that that but was, I, I mean, it's a very, he, he basically tackles just about every angle you could possibly imagine within the book. You know, he takes you right through like the, to the mop up stage. Cause at the end, you know, in the, even in the foreword in the prologue, you're like, we won the zombie war, but doing so was really difficult essentially. Right. And so then he takes you through it. And by the end of the book, you're, you're in, there's, there's still millions tens of millions of zombies roaming the bottom of the ocean and various other 
places, but that's just the new reality. Right. And then he talks about just basically the new reality of what this human society will be at this point. The environment is totally polluted and a lot of the wildlife has been destroyed. There's no more whales. Which is totally sad. Um, <laughs> I mean, he, he describes the oceans as just being deserts because they're full of zombies, first of all. And uh, second of all, all the humans took to the water and just, you know, you think we're overfishing now. I mean, forget about it. Right. And then also just the fact that there wasn't any ready fuel. And, and so basically um, all the trees were cut down and they were burned and, and cause and, and burning wood causes a lot of pollution. Um, so there are all these other issues to deal with, not just the zombies following following the Great Panic. What I thought, there was one piece that I thought was very, not funny, but I found it funny um, because I thought it was very obvious that the character was supposed to be Howard Dean. And he's the, he's the character that had been elected as vice president. The wacko? The wacko. So there's a few different things that I think part of why the book is successful is that he takes certain... Uh, he kind of yanks certain stories from from real stories and puts them into this context so that they seem plausible. Incidentally, uh, the part of the wacko in the audiobook, played by Rob Reiner. Interesting. It's just star studded. It comes from being Albert Brooks's son, I guess. Yes. So what I what I'm thinking is based on this book as we've read it slash and or listened to it. How the hell does this compare to the movie trailer? Well, I actually found an interview with, with Max Brooks talking about this. It's probably not glowing, is it? Um, Actually, he's pretty, I wouldn't say complimentary, but basically he said, look, I I grew up in Hollywood, and when they when they bought the rights to this, I knew that it was going to be very different because there's just no way that you can make this into a movie intact. He did sound slightly bitter about the fact that they didn't ask for his assistance in writing the script. And apparently they invited him to read the script after the the film had started rolling. And he was sort of like, well, you know, this script isn't even going to be anywhere close to where it ends up either. So I'm just going to wait. Yeah, I mean, they've had like five writers on that script. Right. Um, Why not bring him in at this point? Jesus. Yeah. And so I, I think it's... I actually think it's surprising that they didn't do that um, because of the fan base of this particular book. He has got a huge fan base and they're they're quite rabid about this particular film. And I think that the I think that they saw that when the first trailer got so much of a negative reaction, um, which is why there's been so many rewrites. And I think to date, isn't this the most expensive movie production in history? Oh, I don't know about that. I believe it possibly is. Um, I will have to check the numbers on that. But um, but I'll put the, the link to the, the Max Brooks interview in the show notes. Um, I think he's pretty even about it, but he also is very much like, hey, guys, I had nothing to do with this. Yeah, I'm sure he's distancing <laughs> sort of, himself. Sort of it. washing his hands of it, but in a very uh, gentlemanly way. Well, the first thing you're going to notice is that the movie trailer, even though you don't see a lot of zombies, well, you, you've seen the cascade of zombies these are fast this is a fast zombie movie which they're definitely not in the book max brooks is not about fast zombies no sir no and that actually when i first saw the movie trailer i i definitely was like what the hell is this 
And I also feel like so much of it is the personal stories. And you brought this up when we watched the second trailer was that we really aren't seeing a lot of the zombies close up. And maybe that is different from what we will actually see in the film. Maybe this is just for the trailer purposes where they're trying to make it as exciting as possible. It's trailer craft. Yeah. Um, And that's totally fine. But I think so much of this is about the people and their basic, basically their interactions with these zombies on a face-to-face level. We'll have to see how it, how it plays out. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that they, they keep a lot of the insightful geopolitical elements from uh, from the book in the film, I hope so too. Um, I I'm curious though if they will even go there because so much of it is very. I mean, it's a there are a lot of observations within the book that are are loaded, and I could see them skirting around those and just making it a pretty action film. Yeah, it's definitely possible. So. And whether it's going to be one of a trilogy or not, I feel like I've seen some information that hints that that might be the case i've seen that too so i guess i guess we will have to to wait and uh reserve judgment till we see the film but of course i am still going to see it so there's not even any question about that yes but that doesn't mean we we're not going to reserve judgment once we've seen it oh true we, we will totally judge the hell out of it we will totally judge the hell out of it but i actually am going to listen to the audiobook after your rave reviews because it sounds like they got an excellent cast to do it uh, to do the narration, yeah. so oh, it's worth it. I mean, I listened to the abridged version. I, I imagine that means that there is an unabridged one out there, and you should probably try to find that. Okay, I, w- I will do that. Well, that wraps up our discussion of World War Z. All right, so there you have it. As you can probably tell, this was was, was recorded almost ten years ago. That's bananas. Uh, and we had not seen the film, and so there was a lot of. Uh, speculation going on that's i mean if you've listened to this podcast you know that that's like nine tenths of what we do all right so hopefully you enjoyed that uh, trip down memory lane hopefully you'll be back and um hear our next fresh podcast when we can get that one published probably in about a week uh, and until then cheerio cheerio